if you've got your Bible on you this week, why don't you go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, this will be the third Sunday that uh, the Polina Church is um, open back up. And so we're really excited. Uh, it's my first Sunday back preaching there today. You can be praying for the Polina people at uh, 4 p.m. this day as we gather and meet together. And uh, John chapter 1. So uh, a couple weeks ago, if you did not get a chance to listen, get in, listen to the introduction of the book of John, listen to the first three verses uh, of John chapter 1. They are huge. They are chock full of doctrine, uh, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. Uh, we see uh, two people of the Trinity uh, here in these first, uh, first two verses. And uh, you got to listen to the first um, ser- series. It was three weeks ago, uh, the first in the series. And here we have the second in the series. And uh, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses, and we're starting in verse 4 today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so if you've missed it this morning, today's sermon is titled, Jesus, Light and Life. In him was life, and the life was the light of of men. We are starting to try to memorize this as a family. Last uh, three weeks ago, we began memorizing the first three verses. It was actually at lunch right after Sunday service. Uh, so far, it's been an easy memorize, and uh, this verse is, uh, is an easy one to chalk up as well. But it answers the question why did Jesus come into the world? Um, John chapter 1, the beginning of a gospel, it's a little bit of a Christmas story, but it's different than any one of the other gospels and how they start out. They start out with genealogies. They start out with the tales of the Immaculate Conception. Um, These things are are for the purpose of those gospels. Uh, John's gospel is for the purpose of showing that Jesus is God, and so he just starts out with that. And especially when we get down to verse 14 next week, um, he's gonna, we're going to see the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It's the Christmas story. Uh, a few years ago, I taught at a youth camp in the summertime, and one of the things that they did with those youth were, was an activity where it was Christmas in July, and everybody opened presents and, and ate Christmas food. And it was a little strange for me. I'm not going to lie to you. I like Christmas when Christmas belongs. But, um, but you know, actually much of what happened in uh, concerning the time of Jesus' birth and so on and so forth was around even this time of the year. And so it's fitting that we sang a couple of songs this morning that normally we sing a little bit more in that celebrating Jesus' birth time of the year. And it's, we're realizing it here today, the last day of May, that we can celebrate Jesus' birth uh, today. And I'm not trying to be weird or silly or anything like that. It, like really, we want to celebrate the incarnation, that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And so why did Jesus come is the question that is answered here. 
He came for life and he came for light. In him was life. I love the word here in the Greek. Um, It's the word zoe. And uh, there's a family that's come to the church a bit since the last fall. Uh, I coached one of their daughters in soccer and their older daughter was around uh, the soccer team. They began coming to the church a bit and the girls would come to youth group. And uh, one of the oldest daughter's name is Zoe. And I just love that because uh, Zoe, if your parents are listening today, if you're listening, you got to know that it means life. So you get to be life uh, to the world and show them the true life. Uh, So Zoe, in him was Zoe. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in him was the Zoe and the Zoe was the phos is what uh, light is in the Greek. Um, Phos speaks speaks of a very large bonfire or a torch. It speaks of that crest of daylight coming over the mountain in the morning that is so bright. Uh, And it actually even speaks of the people of God. You know, as Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the phos of the world. D.A. Carson says that life and light are almost universal religious symbols. The whole world is, is looking for light and is looking for life. And we see here that from the beginning of the world, from before that even, was Jesus. And Jesus is and was light and life. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John, the same John, says that which was from the beginning. He's going to be speaking of Jesus here. He, Jesus was from the beginning. He was before the beginning. And then John, he's all about that he saw him with his eyes. He's all about being an eyewitness all the time. John, uh, the apostle, is, he loves an, a good eyewitness in events. And um, last night, you know, there was a tornado in Madras. And there was a Uh, I think there was one somewhere around town. People were videoing a funnel uh, from town. And and our house doesn't position itself to see that. We were watching the whole storm. It was incredible. And my wife kept going, the clouds look an eerie green. And they say that that's the color before a tornado, you know. And and lo and behold, if we were facing another direction, you could have seen a funnel, you know. Um, And so uh, some of our friends videoed it. I was so jealous because I wanted to be an eyewitness to that. Well, John here, he's all about being an eyewitness. And he says, uh, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we've heard, we've heard him, uh, which we have seen with our eyes, we've seen Jesus, and we've looked upon him, and our hands have even handled him. John will speak later on in his gospel that he even was leaning against Jesus at the Last Supper concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word. He was from the beginning. He's the word of life. Verse 2 says, and and we're going to come back to this in verse 14 next week, that the life was manifested. That means something shows up. Something appears. uh, When something is manifested, it's showing up and it's doing what it's supposed to do. And the life of Jesus showed up. Uh, There in Bethlehem, he came clothed in flesh, um, the Godhead see. We get to witness him, John says. We've seen him, we bear witness, we declare to you that eternal life. Not only is he 
life, uh, Zoe, but he is eternal life who was with the Father. And it's here that we see a distinction between the Father and the Son. There's been a little bit coming up these last few weeks about the Trinity. I just, you got to know we are a heavily Trinitarian church here. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in one God who exists in three person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That is a false doctrine called uh, modalism. That is that God just shows up in different modes. It, it's unbiblical, okay? You've got to put a blind eye towards all of the passages of distinction in the Bible. And here's one of them too, that eternal life, Jesus was with the Father, okay? They were together and they were towards one another. And the language speaks of how a husband is toward a wife in intimate relationship with. And that life was manifested to us. That word manifested is there again. John says again, that which we see and we heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. So knowing Jesus as we have him given to us in the New Testament, knowing Jesus gives us fellowship with one another, okay? And uh, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. These are distinct persons within the Trinity, within the Godhead. One God existing in three persons um, says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Let's look at a few other verses that have to do with this life and light. John chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So distinction, difference, Father, Son, has life, has granted to have life, okay? Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 25, this is Jesus speaking and saying, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Jesus said it himself, I am the life. And man, isn't this just hit home and isn't this a soothing balm so far to our soul? There's so much death, there's so much destruction, there's so much darkness in the world on so many levels, personally, uh, communally, in our community, uh, globally, in our nation, in the world. I just saw Nepal uh, had their, uh, you know, their, their Congress or whatever extended you know, this lockdown until like June 14th. And when they say lockdown, they mean lockdown. And man, globally, the people of Nepal are hurting in this. And we long for people to have the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. It's he who believes in me, Though he may die, he shall live, Jesus says. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. So knowing who Jesus is affects who we are. It says we won't walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. John 9, 5. You'll notice a lot of these are in John. John's all about Jesus being life and light. This is why he came. John 9, 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world and whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness, okay? Verse five in our text today, John 1, 5, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So this light shines in a dark place. 
Uh, we're reminded of, of people here who would be staggering around in the darkness. And we've all been there. We've all been to where, um, you know, our, our bedroom in the nighttime, you know, we wake up, we got to go get a glass of water. It's pitch black. We have no idea where we're going. We stub our toe. It's very painful. Uh, recently, I was outside in the bright, you know, it's like summer sun, and I went inside really quick, and my eyes had not adjusted yet. You've all been there. And I was fumbling around in, my, in the area of my house because I couldn't see my, whatever it is, the pupils hadn't dilated right or something. And it was, it was crazy to feel that blindness um, and so we have a world that is in darkness that, that the light comes into. We have a world that's staggering and stumbling in the darkness. Um, it was uh, Matt Carter who uh, wrote a commentary, Exalting Jesus in John. I'm loving it so far. He wrote, We would be staggering about in the darkness of our own opinions if Jesus had not brought the light of God's revelation. And so even in this time, there's so many opinions, there's so many thoughts, there's so many worldviews out there, and we would just be staggering around in them uh, if, if we didn't have the light of God's revelation. I, I want to encourage you in this time uh, to listen to the briefing on a regular basis. It's a podcast that Al Moeller, Albert Moeller uh, puts on. Uh, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, he does uh, current events from a Christian worldview. It's really helpful in this time to remind us of the gospel and how to look at all that's happening in light of the scripture and in light of who God calls us to be. But we would be staggering around in this time of darkness if we didn't have the, the anchor and the light of God's revelation, the word of God given to us. Alistair Begg said, but you know what? The world prefers darkness. Once we embrace darkness, we may then engage in the deeds of darkness. Our society has grown so accustomed to the deeds of darkness that we don't even realize the lights are out. Our, our world loves darkness. Our flesh loves darkness. Once we embrace the darkness, we can live out darkness uh, without encumbrances, really. And we notice that our world is so... Um, so accustomed to these deeds of darkness that they are truly living it out. They are now practicing darkness and they don't even know the lights are out. You watch what's happening right now on the streets and there may have been an underlying, maybe even moral reason for uh, a display or a protest. And then all of a sudden it just turns into riot mode and people are looting targets and, uh, you know, carjacking people and they don't even realize that the lights are up you know it's like hey hold on like we kind of overstepped what we were trying to communicate here uh we often think of the darkness the way that charles dickens wrote about it thinking of the late 1800s and some of those slums in london or in new york where it was called a sordid den of iniquity. Dirty old people, Dickens writes. Dirty old people in dirty old caves are coming up with dirty old schemes. But that's not the darkness that the world truly embraces. C.S. Lewis helped us understand it as the greatest evil is not done in those sordid dens of crime. It is conceived and moved and seconded and carried in clean, carpeted, 
warmed and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars, cut fingernails, and smooth-shaven chins who do not need to raise their voices. You know, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's so deceptive. It's not always, you know, the, the dark things, the gangs, you know, or the, the biker clubs, you know, and they got leather and tats on, right? You see, you know, that, that's, that's not wickedness, you know. It doesn't matter if it's white collar or blue collar. Um, and wickedness dwells deep into the heart. But the 20th, 21st century culture doesn't believe that that fits us. They don't believe that we are called darkness or that we are darkness. Sin is a dirty word. Uh, we were trying to adopt uh, through the foster system a number of years ago, and you go to like six weeks of classes, and, and they kind of ask, uh, run you through scenarios. What do you do when your foster child does this or that? And, and when it was my turn to answer, I kind of said, well, you know, I, I would sit them down and I would explain what sin is and that they're a sinner and that they need to turn away from sin. And, re- you know, and, and I would just shut down. We don't tell the kids they're sinners. We don't believe in sin. We believe they're good. And, and I was openly rebuked in front of the whole class. So I got up and walked. No, I didn't. Um, I just took my licks and sat there. Um, but, you know, the world doesn't believe that we're, that we're in darkness. They don't believe that we are sinners. Chrysostom wrote that we are like men with sore eyes. They find light painful while the darkness which permits them to see nothing is restful and agreeable. So the 21st century would say, man, that's, that's 16 centuries ago. Uh, that doesn't apply to us when in reality, uh, the book of John would, would say that it applies certainly to us that we are a world of darkness that needs this great light. It's been said that if you've never hated the news of Jesus, then you've never heard the good news of Jesus. When the gospel comes, it drives you nuts. It says that Herod wasn't unique. Herod wanted to kill the innocent because he didn't want anyone else on his throne. The reason we'd be prepared to kill is because we don't want anyone on our throne either. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus as the Messiah because he didn't fit the plan they had for the Messiah. We want a Jesus of our own making and a Messiah of our own creation And then once we make God in our own image, who will listen to us and give us what we want and do what we want and do as we please, then we will embrace him. You see, if the gospel has never made you angry, you may have never heard the true gospel. Because the gospel confronts you in your sin. The gospel doesn't beat around the bush. The gospel tells it to you like it is. When Jesus says that, that we are uh, poor, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God, he's speaking of those who are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer God. They realize their sin and their deep depravity and corruption and their need for a savior. But the world, even in the 21st century, does not want to be told they are sinners, does not want to be told they are not righteous. And when you tell them that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, they are immediately offended because they don't need saving and they aren't lost. And that is darkness. That is darkness. That is what we dwell in. And that is what our hearts default to if we aren't preaching the gospel regularly to ourselves. 
We see in our verse 5 that the light shines, that it becomes visible, and it appears, and it's made known. That word shines is in the present tense, that the light is still shining to this day in the darkness, in this evil world. The gospel is the good news that you no longer have to wander about in darkness and despair of sin, but you can enjoy the light of righteousness in Jesus Christ. John is not suggesting that we need more religion. The culture of that day had plenty of religion. Jesus came to a very religious world. Religious leaders had memorized lengthy portions of the Bible in its original language, yet they were in bondage to sin and self-righteousness. They stumbled about the darkness, trying to please God through their own labor, through their own righteousness. Jesus comes to offer light from that and life from that. And so the light shines into that. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness couldn't quite grasp it or lay hold of it. Couldn't seize it or overcome it. The the light was not understood by the darkness. John chapter 3 verses 19 through 21. John tells us that this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. It's the world we're living in today. That light has come into the world, and men, they just, frankly, they love darkness more. We love darkness more than we love light. Why? Because their evil, rather, their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Once again, if you've never heard the gospel, uh, rather, if you've never hated the gospel, then you've never heard the gospel. Because Even in the the initial instance, as we hear the gospel, the light shines in our dark places and our flesh cringes at it. Then the Holy Spirit works sorrow for those things and we repent and we turn from those things. Jesus, the light of the world, was hated. Let's look at the Phillips translation of these verses and we've got a slide for you there uh, with it. Here's a slide of these first five verses in the Phillips translation. At the beginning, God expressed himself. That personal expression, that word was with God and was God. And he existed with God from the beginning. All creation took place through him and none took place without him. In him appeared life and this life was the light of mankind The light still shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. And as we move on to verse 6, we have the forerunner to this light. We have the forerunner to Jesus. It's John the Baptist. We're going to read a little bit of John the Baptist, and then then there's like a sandwich of John the Baptist here. He's the bread, okay? A little bit of John the Baptist, a little bit about what John the Baptist was the message, and then next week, uh, maybe even the week after, We're going to see kind of the life of John the Baptist and the testimony of him. But uh, let's just look at it. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So we'll see more about John. John the Baptist down in verse 19. Uh, It's interesting that uh, 
John doesn't really call him John the Baptist because he's like, well, what other John is there? There's me. I'm John. So it's me or him, and I'm writing it. So uh, there's just not a whole lot of separating the two. He's called John here. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This John the Baptist was sent out. It's the Greek word uh, apostello. It's where we get apostle. Um, and, and we believe at Calvary Chapel and what's orthodox is that the apostles were those 12, uh, including Paul, that were sent out, uh, that were active during the book of Acts, and that those, once those guys died away, we don't have the same type of apostles in this day. There's a lot of Pentecostal movements. They've got their apostles. And, and the problem is, is that those men and women often think that they speak on the same plane and level as the Word of God. And what happens many times is that it, they end up trumping the Word of God with their prophecy. Um, and so we believe in prophecy for today, but it's not the same as it was back then. And we believe in apostles, apostles, but it's just different. Now we call them missionaries, and they are those that are sent out from here to proclaim the message of the gospel. And so we have John, John the Baptist. He was like an Old Testament apostle. He was sent out and sent with a message. He was prophesied of in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So when you read the other gospels and John is referenced, uh, he's that messenger that went before the Lord, preparing the way, making his path straight. I love how one of the guys, Warren Wearsby or Ironside, somebody said that he prepared the way and he got out of the way. That was John the Baptist um, for sure. Verse seven, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. So John the Baptist came, was sent out as an apostle uh, to be a witness. There's kind of this courtroom role of testifying and witnessing. And uh, as you may have known through our Book of Acts series, the word witness is marturo. That's where we get our English word martyr. Uh, and if you know the story of John the Baptist, he actually was martyred for standing up for righteousness uh, in Herod's life. And... Uh, But he came and he bore witness to the point of being a martyr. And he testified and he spoke well of this light that we've been learning of today. A.W. Pink wrote that when the sun is shining in all of its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of the fact? Who need to be told it is shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. Maybe even today, you in all of your pursuits and in all of your passions, you've lost sight of the light. You've been living in darkness. You've been giving place to wickedness and to sin, to deception. Uh, You've given place in your heart for untruth, which are lies. And those lies have drawn you away and you've drifted away. Or perhaps for you, you've never even known the light. You've lived in a state of darkness your entire life. And you just happen to be tuning in today. And today we pray that God would illuminate your heart, illuminate your mind, and that you would be told today, even through me, there's light. His name is Jesus. All right. I pray that he would come in and he would shine 
in the darkness of your heart. And he would just illuminate all the dark places and the nooks and the crevices. The book of Ephesians says that, that he comes and he, uh, the light exposes darkness in our heart. And, and then it actually takes things that were dark and it's so light, it's able to actually turn those dark things into light. If you have a, just a wicked past, he's able to turn that past into light and use it for his kingdom and to testify of his goodness and grace, his forgiveness and how he uh, changes and sets the captives free. And so John the Baptist came to bear witness of the same thing that I was just telling you, that all through Jesus might believe. I love this word all here. It's very inclusive of any man, any woman, and any child that they have the potential to be saved and to be born again because of God's grace. But they must believe, the text tells us. The people would believe through the the message witnessed through John the Baptist. It's the same message that's being spoken here today through this live stream. That they might believe. Now, this word believe, and if you're a note taker, you might even underline the word believe. This is a key word in the Gospel of John. It's a term that we find nearly 100 times in this short gospel. If we're to receive Jesus Christ, we must completely rely on Him, rest in Him, trust in Him, believe in Him. John chapter 3, verse 16. I can't wait to actually teach this. We're just going to reference it today, and you all have it memorized, I'm sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Who are those that do not perish? Who are those who have everlasting life? Those who believe in Jesus, those that he has shown his love to, and they respond to that love by believing on Jesus. Now, verse 8 clarifies something for us. That John the Baptist was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Jesus, the light and life. And here we see light, light, twice. Uh, he is the, the uh, Jesus is the light. John the Baptist was not. And John will actually clarify that in John chapter 3 as well. When John answers in verse 27, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. What John the Baptist is saying right there is, I am not the light, but I've been sent to prepare the way for that light. He was there to bear witness of that light. One of the prophecies of Jesus going down into Galilee, it's quoted in Matthew, I think chapter 4. It's from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 where it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. So it's, it's fantastic after Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and comes out victorious. Then he goes right down into Galilee and into this area where people who'd been dwelling in darkness, they are going to see this great light in the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 49.6 also says, indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob 
and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so what we have there is that not only is Jesus a light to the Jews, but I am just completely rejoicing that Jesus is also a light to the non-Jews, that the salvation of Jesus, the light and life of Jesus, has been brought all the way over here to the Americas. You know, um, I was just thinking this morning um, that, uh, you know, you may know I'm, I'm transposing my great-great-grandmother's diary right now, and I've got a Facebook blog where I'm uh, every day, or trying to every day, uh, go to her diary from 1895, and I'm, I'm opening it up, and it's super tiny, and it's super cursive and I'm writing it out, and I'm transposing it onto Facebook as if she was making an update every day on social media. And, uh, but my, that great-great-grandmother, her name was Rosalie, and she was the, the daughter of Chief Iron Eyes. Uh, his name was Joseph LaFleche, Chief Iron Eyes of the Omaha Indians. And um, something of, that, of my family's history is that um, somebody had come and had preached the gospel to them, and uh, Chief Joseph LaFleche spoke into his children's life, and they came to know Jesus as their Savior. My great-great-grandmother writes about going to church and being in fellowship, and uh, you know, for me, it's just wonderful to see that salvation, the light of the gospel, made its way all the way from Judea, all the way up across Asia Minor, all the way up across uh, Europe, all the way across England and across the Atlantic Ocean and to the new colonies and all the way across the territories and all the way to Nebraska and the plains and to the Omaha natives and that someone there spoke the gospel to them. And that gospel has been transferred from generation to generation all the way to me. And I get to be a part of that who's bearing witness of the light today. Verse 9 goes on to say, that was the true light which also gives light to every man coming into the world. Uh, this word true speaks of genuine and real. And there's a couple times in the book of John that we're going to see Jesus as being the true and better light or the true and better life. He's the true and real and better bread. He's the true and better water. And so there's all of these different items that are full of life and bring hope and sustain us. And Jesus is going to be shown in the gospel of John to be the true and best one that those things on their best day, they're just pointing to Jesus who brings us life and nourishment and sustenance and quenches our thirst. It's in Jesus. Jesus is that true light and he gives light. He enlightens and shines upon um, everyone, every man. You might underline that we saw the word all about a sentence ago. Now we see every man and every kind of man coming into the world, who happens upon the world, or which comes into the world. A uh, better translation of that verse might be, that was the true light which coming into the world gives, gives light to every man. Verse 10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. So this light, this life that was manifested came into the world, but that world wasn't aware of him, didn't know him. Um, 
I was thinking, you know, this is, this is like an epic that we're reading about right now. This is, this is like a drama. In fact, there's got to be a movie or a story out there about a creator entering into their own creation and dwelling among them and the people not recognizing him or knowing who he is. And the best that I could do is trying to remember maybe the story of the first Lego movie. Like, I, yeah, Johnny's like, yeah, the Lego movie, you know. Uh, that, you know, there's, there's a kid that created this Lego world, and, you know, he's the main character in it. Nobody knows it, and I don't even know if he knows it at the time. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but it's, it's totally the line to a story or to a movie that, that, that the, the creator takes on the life of the created things, loves them, serves them, lives among them, and lays his life down for them, and, and they didn't even know it, and maybe even they even killed him. Uh, they didn't know it. They didn't comprehend it. They did not know him. Joan Osborne, probably back in the 90s, wrote a song that came to my mind as, uh, What If God Was One of Us? Maybe you remember that song. And One of the verses is, If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? And then it goes on to say, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and in all the prophets? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Johnny apparently loves that song because he was singing it the whole time. <laughs> Simmer down. It's secular. I'm not even sure it's a good song. Okay. But uh, used to say, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to repeat that. Um, but interesting, that final uh, verse there that Joan Osborne says, would you want to see his face if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and in the saints and in all the prophets. Acts chapter 13 tells us those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know Jesus or even the voices of the prophets which were read every Sabbath have fulfilled the prophets in condemning him. Those Jews were living among God when God was one of us. His face was the face of Jesus. His name was Jesus. And seeing him meant that you had to believe in him, you had to believe in places like heaven and hell and the words of the prophets. You had to humble yourself and receive him and believe in him. Verse 11 tells us, well, so what did they do? Well, he came to his own, not only his own creation, but even his own people. He was Jewish. He was out of the tribe of Judah. He was from the line of David and his own did not receive him. He came to his own. Now, we're going to nerd out, geek out here for, I think there's three times that my notes show us that we're going to nerd and geek out. David's game, I think. Yep. Okay, and that is we're going to talk about some grammar here, okay? We're going to be the grammar gorillas, okay? Now, he came to his own is in the aorist active indicative tense, okay? Johnny's sleeping. Jacob rolled his eyes. David's totally into it, though. Okay, all right, so the aorist active indicative tense. Now, the aorist verb tense 
is used by a writer to present the action of a verb in this snapshot event. Okay, so it's like take a Polaroid, take a picture, he came to his own. This verb coming to his own, that he came, the verb's action is portrayed simply and as a summary fashion. Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to his own. It's this beautiful snapshot of human history. He came to those who were unique and individually distinctly his. Now, uh, I'm going to quote D.A. Carson, who really nerded out. Guys, I'm going to tell you right now, the Gospel of John has just been way more than I thought I was biting off to chew. I mean, normally, like for the book of Revelation, a section that I'd preach, I'd be reading 25 minutes in other books per book. Book of John, I'm looking like an hour and 10 minutes per section per book. It's a lot, okay? It's like swallowing a chunk of steak without chewing it okay and da carson love the guy you did too much da you did no he it's great uh, he, he did what was needed but he wrote here that verse 11 is not merely a poignant repetition of verse 10 even though it's pathos stamps the coming of the word as more personal and loving than the coming of the logos in pagan and gnostic thought okay indeed for this reason the verse was instrumental in the conversion of Augustine, okay? So St. Augustine, he was reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. It's all good. And there was something about verse 11, which is more than a poignant repetition of verse 10. And that did Augustine in, okay? That the light and the life came to his this snapshot event of the second person of the Trinity saying to the first person of the Trinity in Psalm chapter 40, repeated again in Hebrews chapter 10, that sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Okay? It's, it's this snapshot event of him coming to his own, and his own did not receive him now the hope was that his own would receive him the word receive kind of reminds you of the holy spirit coming alongside people because it's the word paralambano okay paralambano means to bring along and to learn from someone and to welcome them and that's what the holy spirit does he's the paracletos which means to come alongside he comes alongside christians he empowers us uh and we were to paralambano Jesus. We were to receive Jesus and bring and come alongside him to learn from him. This, here's our second geek out moment, okay? You're like, this whole time has been nothing but geek out moments, okay? How you doing over there, Grandma Barb? Having fun? Okay. Here we go, geeking out. To receive here is in the aorist active indicative, Okay. And what this indicative mood is, is that this action is in a state of being described by the writer as being real, okay? It portrays something as being actual, as opposed to something being possible or 
contingent on just having intention in something. When we receive Jesus, we actually full on, all out, receive him. Now, the sad thing was here, his own did not receive him. We're going to see in just a little bit, verses 12 and 13, we're called to actually all out, not just intend to receive him, but you are called to receive him even today. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, we see what happened when his own didn't receive him. It was a prophecy of this. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our face from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So what was it like when the light of the world came to his own and his own did not receive him? He was despised. He was rejected. He was made sorrowful through this. He was acquainted with grief in this. People hid their faces from Jesus. He was despised, and they gave him no esteem. In Luke chapter 19, uh, we're just for the sake of time, it's in a parable, and it's a parable of Jesus. 19.14 says that Jesus, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. We will not have this man reign over us. That is the reception that Jesus got when he came into this world. Again, 21st century hates to think of us, normal, everyday, every man and woman, being in this state of darkness that would not receive the light, that would not have Jesus rule over them, that would not receive him. C.S. Lewis says that it's a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and yet more difficult to save. And I think that I'm one of those guys that preaches to nice people every Sunday. Got a lot of nice people. You guys are nice people. In fact, when I was thinking of this earlier, I just imagined you all in the sanctuary, sitting there so nicely. Oh, you're dressed in your Sunday best, and smile on your face, maybe dozing off a little bit. But you're nice. You're a nice person. And yet you're lost in your niceness. In your niceness, you're rejecting who Jesus says that you are in your sin and that you're in desperate need of a Savior. In your niceness, you're unprepared to confront the darkness of your heart. And I would pray that today you would set aside everything that you think is a merit on your life that would merit you heaven and eternal life. Lay those things aside and come before Jesus with empty hands, receiving of his grace. His grace is given to you not based on merit, but based on God's love and his kindness and his goodness and his mercy towards you. Final two verses here as we wrap up. But as many as did receive him, as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. In the next two verses, we are going to see both tensions of the 
man's responsibility, God's sovereignty debate. I think it's in these verses that we see both to be true. Man responds to God's calling goodness. Uh, They got to believe. They've got to receive. That is a responsibility that is on man. And yet over all of that is God's overarching love and mercy and grace, his provision of salvation. He has brought the rescue to even be able to happen here. Okay, Uh, And so let's just pull these verses apart very quickly. As many as received him. Again, we have this paralambano or lambano. It means to take him on, to acquire him, to select him, to come to believe in him. The idea of receiving Jesus is biblically valid, okay? You've got to have this in your theology. The idea of receiving Jesus is biblically valid. We have to receive him and believe him ourselves. Charles Spurgeon said, faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream. It is the penniless hand held out for heavenly alms. And I would ask you today, can you focus for just a minute? Maybe you've got a lot of distraction going on around you. Maybe you're all over the place. And I would just ask you, have you ever received Jesus? Have you ever placed your empty cup under the fountain? of Jesus' life and received his life-giving water of salvation? Have you ever reached out your penniless hand, your bankrupt pockets, and said, Jesus, I receive your wealth of salvation? Today, I would just plead with you to be a receiver of Jesus. And to anyone who would receive Jesus, To them, he gave the right for something. You know, right now, we're all about our rights, aren't we? Churches have a right to meet. We have the right to assemble. I have the right to, I'm the one that should decide if I'm going shopping, wearing a face mask, wearing rubber gloves. I've got the right for this. I've got the right for that. God-given rights, constitutionally given rights. Uh, My grandpa fought in the war. I fought in the war. These are rights that I've got. And we love our rights. And I just hope that today you would see this This right that has been given to us, it is the right to have eternal life. That when we receive the gospel, God has given us a constitution. He has given us a right, and that is a right for eternal life. That is a right to become children of God, descendants of God, disciples of God. A writer named Tenney wrote that the word children, tekna, is parallel to a Scottish word, bairns, or bairns, bairns, no? Yeah, you think that's how you would say it in Scotland, right? Bairns, which means born ones, okay? And it emphasizes vital origin, and it's used as a term of endearment. It speaks of God's little ones, to those who would believe on him and receive him, He's given them the right to be his bairns, his little ones, his born ones, to those who believe in his name, for those who think him to be true and trust him, who believe upon his reputation and his authority and his cause. 
The word believe here is in the present active participle. And just to geek out one final time, it's active. Believing is a grammatical voice that signifies that the subject is performing the verbal action or is in the state described by the verb. So Christians are those who continue believing. Every day we believe. We still believe. Verse 13 then goes on to say, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but from God. And so we have man's responsibility in verse 12 to those who received him. That's something that we do. God uh, sovereignly calls us, predestined us, elects us. Um, Verse 13 kind of shows that overarching sovereignty of God. Yet he doesn't believe for us. He doesn't receive for us. He leaves that ball in our court. To those who would receive, then he gives the right to be called those little ones. And then we see again in verse 13, just again that sovereign overarching of it, that we were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man. It wasn't something that we mustered up. And I'm not going to get into kind of the technicality of it because it talks, kind of gets into a picture of, say, a couple that's wanting to have a baby and how they might go about having a baby is kind of the idea here. Um, and that it's ultimately, it's up to the Lord. The Lord who would give this baby. Okay, so we are born not of all of our, you know, our pedigree. We're not by, born again by our race. Book of Romans tells us that it's not about race, but it's about grace. It's not about being a Jew. It's about God's gracious call on our lives to salvation. We are born again because of God's grace. Charles Spurgeon said, This new birth is something that brings change to the life. The man is like a watch which has a new mainspring. Not a mere face and hands repaired, but a new inward machinery with freshly adjusted works which act to a different time and tune. And whereas he went all wrong before, now he goes right because he is right within. And so as we receive Jesus, he sets us right within. He gives us a new mainspring. He gives us new innards. He gives us a new heart. Now we're set right because we're right within. That is a work of God's spirit when we are born again by his will, by his choosing, by his election. God chooses, sinners simply respond. It's a picture of adoption. I believe that adoption is one of the ultimate pictures of grace. That little child, nothing in and of themselves rescued them out of a pit of an orphanage. It was the moving and the action and the labor and the cost and the sacrifice of the parents that, that caused this little one to be brought into a new family. Uh, man, we just think of all the, the people we know, even in our church, that have adopted ones. And those little ones are just as much a part of that family. They're a part of our family, really. And it's a picture of the gospel. As we close down, we're going to go ahead and just move to uh, worship and communion. If you have your communion elements, we're going to close in a song and then we'll take communion together in this song, but closing down with this as the worship team comes up, 
I had this song in my heart, and I think I'm going to actually make it into one of our signs of hope uh, for this next week. You know, we're, we're thinking about darkness and how darkness is a word that describes our world apart from Jesus. It describes our community apart from Jesus. We are a dark community. It describes my heart and yours apart from Jesus. No matter what we look like, no matter what you know, our hobbies are or what sets us apart, what our jobs are, we are dark apart from Jesus. But the good news is the light has come. And if anyone would receive that light, he has been given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. And Tim Keller wrote this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more dark and depraved and corrupt than we would ever believe. That's the bad news. That's the dark backdrop. But the beautiful gem that would be laid out on that dark backdrop, which makes it shine all the more, is that we are more loved in Christ Jesus, in the light of the world, in the life of the world, than we ever dared even imagine. And so that is something that should bring joy to our heart today. That is something that should cause us to want to go out and and tell the world of this blessed hope that's in Jesus Christ.